What They Don't Tell You brings you real conversations about wealth management that real people have behind closed doors. We bring together clients and experts to talk about topics that go beyond the numbers. In this episode, we delve deeper into the complexities of choosing the right executor, from family fights in the boardroom to the risks surrounding right of survivorship. Trust lawyer Jamie Kidd shares some of his personal experiences to help guide your decision. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next edition of What They Don't Tell You. My name is Linnea McKercher, and I'm VP and Portfolio Manager here at CWB Wealth Management. In one of our recent episodes on wills and estates, Anna Premslova began the conversation on estate planning. There is a ton of information covered in that episode to help you with proper planning for your will and estate. One of the things that Elsa and Anna touched on in that episode was naming your executor. I wanted to dig a bit deeper into that topic today because I think it's really important to have the right person in place, especially for the intergenerational transfer of assets. With me today to discuss the topic and share some stories is Jamie Kidd from Sorrell Private Trust. Jamie, could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, Hello, Lene. Thank you for inviting me today. Um, I'm a trust lawyer and I've uh, been working in the trust industry uh, both onshore and offshore for God, close to 30 years. You can tell by the color of my hair. Um, I'm the president of uh, Sorrell Private Trust Company, which is an independent trust company regulated by the province of Alberta. Um, but really at my core, I'm, I'm just a trust boy. Thanks, Jamie. When we connected earlier about this topic, you described the trust business to me as a hurry up and wait business. What do you mean by that? And what do you like about your job and what keeps you coming to work every day? Well, I love helping people. And honestly, I love listening to their wonderful stories. And, and you're right. It truly is a hurry up and wait process. Um, there's a number of duties that an executor has, such as starting with funeral wishes, um, determining what assets and liabilities there are in an estate, protecting those assets right off the bat, um, locating yeah. beneficiaries making an application for creditors and claimants, um, advertising, as I should say, and waiting for the, all that information to come in. You're hurry up and waiting. Um, you have to prepare an asset and liability statement, submit an application for probate, wait for that probate to come in, and then you confirm your appointment as the executor and you're able to deal with the assets and pay, pay liabilities, make distributions to legatees, um, and make interim distributions. And Overarching all of this is uh, Canada Revenue. They want their pound of flesh. So there's a number of tax returns that need to be filed and waiting for notices of assessment and ultimately waiting for clearance certificates from Revenue Canada when you can complete the estate after you've made all the final distributions. On top of that, you may have some testamentary trusts that are created under the will, and, and that can go on for years, administering those trusts. Right. So it really is a lengthy process, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to dig further into the topic on executorship, because I think the default option for most people is that they choose their kids um, as executor. And I think traditionally that we all thought it was an honor to be an executor of an estate, but sometimes it's really quite a daunting task, Um, or worse yet, it can cause strained relationships between different family members. When I think back to my own personal situation with my mom, 
she named all three of us surviving kids as executors. And we divided up the responsibilities and we all got along fairly well. And we got the job done, thankfully. Um, but what I've seen working with some of my clients over the years is that it's not always an honor to be named the power of attorney, the executor, or even the trustee on a trust. Sometimes those roles can be really quite onerous and they take their toll on people's emotions and family dynamics. So I'd like to start there, Jamie. Why do you think it is that the role of executor has traditionally been a family member? I think traditionally, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's trust. People typically trust their spouse, although maybe some shouldn't, um, and their children, although maybe some shouldn't. But I think that's typically the reason why, traditionally. Um, but you're right. It's no longer an honor uh, as it used to be appointing someone as your executor. It truly has become more of a burden. Yeah. And I think what happens in some situations is people do their will, but it, time passes. It could be 10 years till they pass away. And a lot of things with family dynamics can change during that time period. So it can um, turn into a bit of a burden. So what types of situations particularly do you think maybe it's not appropriate to name a family member as executor? Well, two words come to mind, um, complexity and conflict. So if you have an estate, a complex estate that uh, may have an operating business, uh, maybe have a great variety of assets, uh, may have multiple generations of beneficiaries or beneficiaries and assets in different jurisdictions, complexities are involved. Um, you may have conflicts, potential conflicts. You can a lot of the time you clearly identify beneficiaries that may pose a conflict in, in the estate situation. And second marriages with beneficiaries are kind of yeah. a potential chance for a conflict for, for sure. Right. I think sometimes we can discount our own situation and think it's really straightforward. But really, there might be a lot of hidden complexities in there or things that happen in the future that we can't really plan for. So um, I was wondering if you could tell us about a complex estate that you've had to administer where your skills and experience were really needed for the situation and the average person like myself would have probably struggled. Um, well, I can think of a, a complex uh, estate, which I call a Caribbean story. Um, sadly, it was a tragic story. Uh, a lovely middle-aged couple that had minor children. The couple were on holidays in the Caribbean, and uh, they were both killed in an accident, leaving behind the minor children in Canada uh, and an active business. Um, it was quite complex from the level that there was litigation in a foreign country. Um, trust needed to be created for the uh, beneficiaries, the minor beneficiaries that were already created under the will need to be administered, and they are administered for many years. And of course, dealing with the tax and sale issues with the business had to be dealt with. And, and eventually, everything worked out, but it, it took considerable time and energy to, to, to reach the end goals. Fortunately, the kids turned out to be lovely young ladies. Wow. Like that really sounds like a bit of a nightmare situation to deal with. And uh, I can see what you say with a lot of hurry up and wait in that scenario. It seems like everything that was complicated, even in that scenario, was compounded because it happened offshore and there was litigation involved. Um, 
we know that from our last episode that executors need a few qualities. They need to be objective and they have to have a little bit of a generalist nature and know a little bit about real estate, tax and accounting. Um, and all I remember when my mom passed away was getting this little to-do checklist from the funeral home. <laughs> and I think there's no way it would have covered everything that you just talked about in that complex Caribbean situation. Um, so I was wondering, Jamie, do you think that estates have become more complex in the, say the last 20 to 30 years? And if so, what do you think has changed? Well, I, I think one of the biggest things that, that assets have changed over the last 20 to 30 years, and, 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 and estates definitely have become more complex. 30 years ago, you had a typical estate may hold Canada savings bonds and a home. Uh, nowadays, people have a great variety of investments, such as mutual funds, uh, pooled funds, uh, ETFs, ESGs, impact investments, uh, private equity, businesses. Uh, digital assets. And in particular, also assets and people are held across a variety of jurisdictions. The world's become more global. I had one estate, uh, which was a lovely, uh, she wasn't young, young, lovely elderly uh, Scottish lady, unfortunately passed away and she had married an Alberta boy. And uh, she had never had any children. They never had any children. And, and when you don't have any children, it, you tend to become wealthy, I think, <laughs> and uh, tends to do that. He passed away first. And then many years later, she passed away. Um, we were her executor. And um, one of the main duties of being an executor is investigating the property and the assets, as I mentioned earlier, and investigating the documents that the deceased had. And so in investigating uh, those assets at her property. We found over $10,000 in cash in envelopes and bank and in books, um, and also found three holographic wills. So a holographic will is a will written entirely in the testator's own handwriting. It isn't witnessed. Um, fortunately, the three holographic wills um, weren't um, uh, contradicting each other, and they weren't contradicting the formal will that she had properly drafted by a lawyer. So what that meant is we had to go make an application for proof in solemn form with the court, which is an open court before a judge and the wills had to be proven. The, the handwriting of the testator had to be proven. Fortunately, we had the consent of her beneficiaries, which were nieces and nephews who lived in Scotland, beneficiaries in another country. Mm -hmm. Got through that process, took a long period of time. And then you'd think everything was well and good. Well, she also had a home in Scotland, in Edinburgh, that had to be administered. Well, our probate in Canada had to be resealed in Scotland, which means we had to do the application all over again in Scotland so that we could deal with that property. Fortunately, one of her nephews had been renting it out for her over the years, and he was able to protect that property and secure it as well as uh, we had a security company dealing with it. So it, it was a long, onerous process where you have assets and beneficiaries across two countries. Um, fortunately, uh, you know, people in Canada may not have properties in Scotland, but there's sure a heck of a lot of people that have properties in Scottsdale. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. It's very common for people to own um, multiple properties, and it definitely adds another layer of complication to the estate. Um, as much as we can plan and take all the right steps, you know, even hire a professional, 
I guess sometimes the best laid plans don't even work out as intended. So I was wondering if you could tell us about a time when maybe emotions got in the way of getting things over the finish line, so to speak. Well, we, there was a one story that I have of an estate where two sons uh, were the beneficiary of their father's estate. Large estate, $20 million estate, um, goodwill planning. Um, the cash is divided equally between the two of them. We knew you had to break them up in a board in a fight in our boardroom. What do you think the fight over the in the boardroom was about? They both got ten million dollars cash. Yeah, Dad had a lot of money, so I'm thinking maybe like a vintage sports car or something like that. Yeah, no, a freezer. They were fighting over a freezer. One of the sons was a fisherman, and he wanted the freezer for his fish. The other son had a wonderful conversation with his dad after he helped bring the freezer down to the basement with him when he originally purchased it. They had never gotten along, and they finally sat down and had a first good long talk over a beer with their backs against the freezer. So he had sentimental reasons for wanting the freezer. They fought over this freezer for two different reasons, and unfortunately, uh, we sold the freezer, and they could go by with their money, as many freezers as they wanted to. It's it isn't the money. Money can be divided. It's the things that people typically fight over. Yeah, that's an interesting situation. And, you know, who knows where it would have ha- what would have happened if you had not been involved in that situation. Um, so on that note, I was wondering, could you share with our listeners, um, you know, one of the most objective ways you've seen for dealing with distribution of personal property? Well, one of the best ones that I've seen was uh, where a lady uh, mandated in her will that personal property should be divided by um, lots. And so the children had to randomly select lots and then they chose one after another. And it worked out beautifully. Nobody fought and we didn't have to break up any fights in a boardroom. So it worked out well. So there could have been a little bit of horse trading afterwards, maybe, but no fights during the negotiation. Yeah, there was a little bit of horse trading, but it, you know, they respected the what their mom wanted and what her wishes were. So it ended up being okay. You've given myself and our listeners lots to think about for those complex situations. Say we were to choose a professional executor or a trust company, how much does that cost? And generally, how are the fees determined for that? And would you say that there's any size of an estate that's too small where it doesn't make sense to hire a professional? A great question. Uh, fees, whether you are an individual executor or a trust company, are determined by surrogate court guidelines all across the country. Every province has those guidelines, and they're all the same. They're uniform across the country. So the maximum that an executor can charge on fees is 5% of the gross probate value of an estate as at the date of death. All the provinces of Alberta is pretty conservative. And in Alberta, we typically do, you don't see the average estate fee being up at 5%. Whereas in most other provinces, they can charge a maximum of 5%. Courts are pretty stingy here. Um, I'm sure the courts won't want me to say that, but uh, the max can't be charged right away. And so the factors to determine what a fee are would be quantitative and qualitative factors. So Quantitatively, what's the size of the estate? Very, pretty simple. And qualitatively is what's the type of estate that we're dealing with? What are the type of assets? Is there complex assets? Are there beneficiaries in different jurisdictions? What are the complexities involved? And 
And those are really the factors that are that are brought in to determine how, what a fee is appropriate for a particular estate. Um, as far as size is concerned, I mean, we don't want to be an unnecessary burden on an estate. Um, so typically, I guess you could say $2 million would probably be the smallest, but we've done estates smaller than that under different circumstances for a variety of reasons. One other thing that I am seeing lately with some of my clients is that they're putting their kids on their bank accounts for right of survivorship, or they're putting their kids as co-owners on their houses and things like that. What do you think of those situations, Jamie? I think it's always done with the right intentions, but you know, can something go wrong in those situations? Definitely. That scares me. And so when, um, People put the typical situation is uh, husband and wife, where they are joint with right of survivorship on their assets. All's well and good. They're a couple. Where the issues arise is when it just as you described, if they name one of their kids as uh, uh, on a uh, joint with right of survivorship. I had one estate where mom thought this was a neat idea. She'd done it with her husband who had passed away. She was sick. And then just before she passed away, she named her son, who was our co-executor as one of the, as the joint survivor um, on her accounts. Well, thankfully he was, I call him the good sign. Thankfully he was a good son because he, he could have scooped the money and then left to Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. And his brother and sister would have been left high and dry. He was honest and we administered the estate accordingly, according to her will. Legally, what happens is it's holding the account. It's a matter of convenience, and it's especially happening with our elder population. Um, The joint tenant in these cases with the children and the parent, it's legally a a resulting trust. But irrespective of that, they can still go and scoop the money because the bank or whoever doesn't really understand that that's the case. Um, so the proper way to deal with it is not joint with the right of survivorship. It would be to get a proper power of attorney, enduring power of attorney executed by the individual while they're alive. So, Jamie, usually we end our episodes asking our guests what they don't tell you about executorship. Before I give you a chance to answer, I think I'm going to steal your thunder in this case, because I, I really think that I've learned that what they don't tell you is there's really no such thing as an easy estate. It seems like, you know, my mom's situation seems fairly simple, but if she had passed away while she was traveling or while on one of her cruises, it certainly would have been more difficult to deal with. And I think, you know, looking back, naming the three of us kids as executors could have been really a recipe for a disaster. It seems more like we got lucky in our situation. Would you agree? Honestly, you know, I think you and your family were lucky. And you have a very unique situation. And I think it's more attributed to the fact probably that you're an experienced investment professional um, where you deal with rational issues on a daily basis. This wouldn't be out of the norm for you to deal with. And I would imagine your siblings as well. So um, it is quite unique. It is definitely not the norm. Um, You're right. It is not an honor to be uh, an executor in today's day and age. there really is no easy estate. So in closing today, I'd like our listeners to reflect on whether or not they have any of those complex situations or possibilities for conflict that Jamie mentioned. 
I think the last thing you want to do is leave your kids or your beneficiaries with a difficult situation at a time when they're grieving the loss of a loved one. In actuality, we probably want to make it as easy as possible for our loved ones. When I'm working with my clients, a lot of times they'll mention to me that it's time for an update on their will. So I hope that today's edition of What They Don't Tell You and our past edition on wills and estates were helpful for your own reflection and gave you some food for thought. If you need any help or guidance on these decisions, please don't hesitate to reach out to us here at CWB Wealth Management. Our client portfolio managers and senior planners are here to start the conversation and help guide you in the right direction for any advice that you might need. Thanks again, Jamie, for taking the time to join me today. I love the conversation. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We hope to see you next time on What They Don't Tell You. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy, everyone. 